Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A massive amount of attention being paid to the U.S. 10-year Treasury as it flirts with that 3% level, a level we haven't seen in more than four years. This doesn't have to be bad news for risk assets. In 2013, when yields surged through 3%, the equity market delivered one of its best years at a bull market so far, with a gain of almost 30%. So why could it be different this time around? I want to bring in Vince Reinhardt, BNY Mellon Chief Economist and Chief Investment Strategist. Vince, always great to catch up with you. Just walk me through that. Why it could be uh, different this time around? Uh, we actually don't say that in my household. Uh, this time is never different. Uh, I, think, I think the story is, is the Fed raising rates and seen as raising rates for the right reason, i.e. the economy's got momentum, the equilibrium real federal funds rate is rising. Think about it. Think how you describe the last six Fed actions when you consider the policy renormalizations last year and into this year. They got good press. They said Fed confident about the expansion and raising rates and and renormalizing policy, still keeping it accommodative. Uh, in that environment, equity markets can do pretty well. The difference this time around, though, if, if there is a key difference, I would say, looking back at 2013 versus now, is that back then, Vince, the two-year note was 50 basis points, and now it's two and a half. Um, and two and a half is pretty much where we started the year on the 10-year. That's where we have seen an aggressive repricing sure. at the front end of the curve. Could that be what sort of spells out a different story for risk assets this time around? Well, the reality is we are walking up a path of Fed tightening, and so we're 125 basis points higher on the funds rate. In that environment, the yield curve is going to flatten. Uh, is not necessarily threatening to economic expansion. In fact, it says that people think the Fed will be slow to raise rates, not particularly fast. It doesn't have to mean impending doom, and I don't think many people on this program think that. In fact, the last time we had an inversion on the yield curve, pre-crisis, it was a couple of years before things really rolled over. So it doesn't have to mean anything immediately bad is going to happen. I think the story for me, Vince, is something that could happen in markets where the front end of treasuries gets attractive enough that it competes for capital in a more significant way with things like equities and credit as well, whether it's investment grade or high yield. Do you see that story kind of materializing? Well, we're seeing that in money markets. That's part of the reason LIBOR spreads are so wide, right? Yeah. Uh, the TED spread or LIBOR, OIS, uh, those spreads have widened a bit in part because if you're a corporate treasurer and you see a nice, safe, risk-free short rate as high as it is as, as, in, in such a long time, uh, why do you want to take on risk? Uh, and so if it can happen at the front end, it can happen further, further out maturities. But we're not there yet. And Vince, I just wonder what this means for financial conditions, because for so many years, the Federal Reserve has been able to hike interest rates now very slowly, very gradually, and financial conditions haven't tightened until really recently. Yeah. Does that put the brakes on the Fed, or is that what the Fed ultimately wants to see? They want to see higher interest rates and, and some tighter conditions along with it. That's the desired policy outcome, right? You can't slow the economy unless you've tightened financial conditions. And if you think the economy has no resource slack and is growing faster than potential, you want to modestly slow 
the expansion of aggregate demand. You do it by tightening financial conditions. Listen to Bill Dudley last week. That's um, what he was talking about. We have uh, noted three quarters of an average, I believe it's 3.1% or 2.9% economic growth. Do you model at BNY Mellon a sustained 3% GDP? Uh, no, because in the in the long run, we're anchored by the growth of aggregate supply. We have an aging population, yeah. not increasing that fast, and for some reason or another, we're not re adding much to Can Chairman Powell work in the long run? Uh, sure. I think that that's because that maps directly on what they think the equilibrium real federal okay. funds rate. Long-run growth is the attractor to everything. And, it, and we talk about the cyclical behavior of the economy relative mm -hmm. to that trend. Within this is my conversation at the IMF with the head of Treasury for Norway. They lowered their target rate from an oil-induced 2.5% down to the conventional 2%. Is there any constituency, given that attractor of lower potential growth, to bring the, the rate under 2%? Is there any research vision that we ought to go to 1.8% target rate on inflation? Uh, actually, the most of the research would say in terms of inflation, you go the other way. Because when you lower potential output growth, you're probably lowering the equilibrium real rate. Mm -hmm. And the lower the equilibrium real rate, the closer that zero bound to nominal interest exactly. rate looks. Yeah. So in fact, this should be an argument for raising for the inflation goal. Yeah. For goose So is, Ch is Chairman Powell the new ultimate dove? Uh, I don't see him going there because 2% has been locked in the central bank discussion uh, since 1995 when the Fed talked about but quantifying uh, the inflation goal. And might I point out, this excuse me, this time is different, John. We've got trillion-dollar deficits. Go. I, uh, I mean, there was this book a couple of years ago, Rogoff, and what was her name? I, I, be okay. I believe we were described as Reinhardt and Rogoff. Oh, it was Reinhardt and Rogoff. Uh, but there's some there's some research since the Kerman's done. And what do they and, say? And that's going to be the part of the conversation, and that's about financial well, repression. We should Governments with big debt like inflation. So we may exactly. wind up with higher okay. inflation, not because I, of Jay Powell, I don't but because of— I don't want to get you in trouble at home or out on that beautiful porch you've got. But the basic idea here, Vince Reinhardt, is Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff said, when the deficits get to a point, things change. Did they change with the T word? Are we at a point, not speaking for Carmen Reinhardt, but Vince Reinhardt's work, what's a trillion dollar deficit mean to you? Okay, another favorite factoid about out of the world economic outlook. If you looked across advanced economies at their debt level in, G, in 2007, the ones with big debt were the ones that performed much more poorly. Debt is a problem. Deficits are a problem. That will be pushing up on interest rates over the long, medium and longer term. That will be a sea mm -hmm. anchor on the value of the dollar, and it will create the incentive for a little bit more inflation. Well, let's talk about the dollar just quickly, Vince. Um, the dollar rebounding over the last five days, a um, bit of a pause in today's session. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? Because a lot of people's investment decisions have been sort of been on the premise, particularly in EM, 
for anyone that's getting that exposure to EM currencies on, on the idea that at best the dollar's going to get weaker and at worst the dollar's going to be stable. Could be a real pain trade if we get an unwind of that position. It, um, what, what do you see happening? Yeah, I think you're right. It does feel like a crowded trade, isn't it? And the problem is you could be right in the medium and longer term and have your head handed in before that. Yeah. We, we view this as, as, as just the, the different forces near term, medium term. Medium term, the list is pretty daunting about why you'd want to hold dollar assets i.e. current accounts, budget deficits, big debt, an attitude uh, uh, that is basically contrary to internationalism. We're eroding our safe haven asset value. That's probably why you have a medium to longer term view of the dollar depreciates. Vince but before that, yeah. the Fed's going to tighten more than people think. That's, <laughs> that tends to appreciate the It's been great to have you with us. Thank you very much for joining us. BMY Mellon, Chief Economist and Chief Investment Strategist. Tom, big theme in Europe yeah. at the moment has been disappointing economic data. And that disappointing economic data continues with the German business confidence number coming through this morning. The EFO, and it extends its drop over the last several months and through the year after peaking at the back end of 2017. To talk Europe, Gabby Santos, Gabriela Santos, <laughs> JP Morgan, asset management, global market strategist, joining us around a table in New York. Gabriela, always great to catch up with you. You've just been to Europe. So walk me through your vacation and whether you see an improving European economy because it's not coming through in the data at the moment. We do see a very much an improving European economy. It was interesting to see that the dynamism, the energy, the enthusiasm. Uh, I was just in Portugal last week. Um, but to your point, it has been a disappointing first quarter for European data. And I would separate that into two factors. The first is the survey data, things like the PMI, yep. which have moderated significantly over the first quarter. But those had been signaling growth that was unre that was just not realistic, right? 3.5% GDP was being signaled. That was not going to happen, unfortunately. <laughs> so the survey data has moderated back to reality. And then the second piece is the hard data has disappointed as well. <laughs> so we do think that first quarter GDP is going to come in closer to one and a half. But we think that's due to probably temporary factors such as the weather, the intense flu season, and that's likely to revert already in the second quarter. Just in terms of how the bond market is capturing, capturing this story, Gabriella, we have this front end story, two year bonds versus two year treasuries. The spread is now north of 300 basis points. It is so, so wide. I think that's a record wide, a new one as well, that's been delivered over the last week. How much longer can we keep this divergence between what is happening with the ECB in Europe and the Eurozone economy and the Federal Reserve in the United States and the US economy? Well, I think they're, they're marching to the beat of their own drums, right? The U.S. certainly has a lot of confidence on both the growth as well as the inflation outlook. And so it's going to keep its track for four rate hikes this year, probably even for next year as well, um, and even probably some further rate hikes in 2020 as it continues winding down its balance sheet. Meanwhile, it doesn't seem like uh, President Draghi's in any rush, especially after the, the soft patch in the yeah. data that we're speaking of in the first quarter. He's probably going to want some confirmation that that was probably a bit temporary. Well, Gabriella, that's kind of what I'm thinking about at the moment, whether yeah. Treasuries can continue this slow grind high with yields and whether the European bond market 
can remain anchored. Do you really see a bond market, a global bond market, where the US Treasury market can almost decouple from everything mm-hmm. else? Is that actually likely? Well, I think what's interesting is not necessarily the two-year yield um, and that gap, but perhaps the 10-year <clears throat> yield, right? So last week, uh, as the 10-year yield started marching high, uh, higher in the US, it did so <clears throat> around the world as well, right? So there was something yeah. that was common, which was this idea of higher oil prices, higher inflation, um, as well as confirmation that probably the soft patch in first quarter growth was temporary. How do you deal with the bias that were J.P. Morgan were ginormous? And we saw that clearly, seriously, in Mr. Diamond's letter. People forget the scope and scale of the company and that institutional and client urge to only own the top 200 companies worldwide. There's this massive urge, comfort in big. How do you fight that every day at J.P. Morgan to actually look at mid-caps? Well, comfort in big and also comfort in in, in just one's uh, uh, area of comfort, shall we say. There's, mm. there's always this very intense home bias, right? Rather, we talk depending on whether we talk about equities or fixed income. So that's something we talk a lot about, not just size of companies, but also geography as well. And I think that's becoming ever more important, especially for our U.S. clients, right, which were in this environment where the U.S. was the only house in the block. It was okay. You could get away with having a home bias. Probably not so if we fast forward the next 10 years. That's probably not mm. going to get you to your goals. Uh, you have to have some Europe. You have to have some Japan. You have to have some EM. <clears throat> well, one quick question. Do you have to have cash? I think cash is becoming much more of an alternative now than it's been perhaps yields are higher. over I the last do 10 years. On, can, yeah, I, yields are higher, right? It's it's kind of broadening your opportunity set beyond just equities mm-hmm. and fixed income. You can add cash and you can add commodities, right? So your, right. your opportunity set has become a little bit broader this year and over the next few years. Very good. Gabriel Santos, thank you so much at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. John, I want you to bring in one of the best people we have on foreign exchange, Elsa Lignos of RBC Capital Markets. Yeah, the global head of FX strategy joining us out of London after a brief rally in the dollar that stretched to about five straight days, a real retracement of an ugly 2017, a tiny retracement of a massive move lower last year. Elsa, what do you make of the move in the dollar we've seen over the last week and how sustainable could it be? It's interesting because it's come along a backdrop of higher yields, but also lower equities. Um, And that's something um, we've done quite a bit of work on in the past and um, looked at what happens in that kind of quite unusual environment where you see a twin bond and equity sell-off. And actually, it turns out to be a pretty strong environment for the U.S. dollar. That's not to say this is necessarily going to last. We saw something similar in February, and it reversed. Um, But if it does continue, then it should be a pretty good environment for the dollar going forward. So, Elsa, correlation and causation, obviously two very different things. And the correlation between yields and the dollar over the last week had many people scratching their heads and wondering whether rate differentials are starting to matter again. Was it that or was it just pure risk aversion that was driving the bid into the dollar? It's hard to put it down to risk aversion when you look at the performance of dollar-yen um, or even dollar-swiss for that matter. That's a good point. So it does seem to be something more U.S. dollar-specific. So can rate differentials be the deciding factor as we go forward from here? Because if you look at the spread at the front end between Europe and the United States, Alistair, it suggests that euro-dollar should be a whole lot lower than it is right now. 
Exactly, and and that's broken down for some time and has had a lot of people scratching their heads, um, which is why I think it's interesting that this move appears to have been driven more by the back end. Um, this doesn't seem to be a, a kind of traditional vanilla rate differential story. Yeah. Um, it does seem to be a little bit more about the kind of bond equity interaction. Is the dollar so big, so dominant that flows don't matter? Else, I bring this up with the backdrop of a weak Swiss franc, which a lot of people will say are Russians moving money around in Switzerland, and I get that. But can the dollar move on flows, or is the dollar dynamic all about rate differentials? Absolutely, the dollar can move on flows. I, you know, I think we saw that um, most vividly in January, where we had a huge dollar move, um, and a lot of people were scratching their heads. I mean, I heard any number of reasons for why the dollar was so weak in January, but not many of them are stacked up by evidence. So, you know, there are certainly times when people pile into a position, whether that's long dollars or short dollars, um, and you get these huge outside moves that go well beyond what rate differentials alone would suggest. But that doesn't tend to last. And we've seen that since February, the dollar's actually been relatively stable. So what is your call? I want to be clear here before we go through the rest of this. What is the RBC call on dollar? So if you look at our forecast, we actually have some dollar strength into year end, not a huge amount, um, but our year end forecast for euro dollar, for example, is 118. Um, that's probably a lot weaker than many in the market would have it. Yeah. Um, but it's selective. You know, we, we don't have dollar stronger across the board by any means. Yeah, I mean, and, and that describes, I guess, the ambiguity out there. Is there a trade right now or is the street flat? I mean, what's the bet on dollar right now? It's been fairly mixed, I'd say, recently. We've actually seen some evidence. If you look at um, turnover and estimates of turnover, we've seen evidence of investors getting more interested in relative value trades, to be honest. Um, so we've seen euro-yen pick up from kind of late January. More recently, there was a lot of interest in the CAD crosses and sterling crosses. I think that reflects the fact that people have kind of given up a little bit on the U.S. dollar and started looking for value elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I see that, John. I, I, I can't put it out the way it grabs on the screen, but Bloomberg's got a highfalutin series called OVDV, which shows me the bets on any given currency pair. And it's remarkable how symmetric and even euro dollar is right now. Now, so if we do get a recovery in the US dollar, a sustainable one, and this continues, where are we going to see the most pain? Oh, it'd have to be in emerging markets. I mean, that's really been one place where, you know, you just have to look at Dolomex, for example, to see the pain that can be caused in just a few short days. Um, you know, Dolomex was just trending lower and lower and lower through February, March. Um, Mex, one of the best performers year to date, and in the space of three, four, five days, it all reverses. So, you know, I think that's where you've got to be most cautious, the highly positioned EM currencies. Yeah, and speaking to a lot of fixed income investors that want to play the EM local currency story, and they want the FX exposure, there seems to be this real comfort taking that FX exposure in emerging markets, Alsa. So I just wonder, what are you advising clients around EMFX now? And has it changed over the last few weeks? So our Latam strategist has actually been quite cautious on a lot of these currencies since the start of the year. Um, you have a lot of political risk coming up, both in Brazil and in New Mexico, with elections coming up this year. The problem with these currencies is that they're very expensive to short. You know, like you mentioned, fixed income investors take the currency risk because if you were to short, um, if you were to hedge the currency, mm -hmm. you'd be left with very little or 
any yield pickup at all. So um, I think it, it pays to just be a little bit more careful with these very, very heavily positioned EM currencies like MEX and perhaps yeah. look for opportunities in areas which are less positioned like Asia or EMEA. Well, to John's point, how do you play oil? I mean, we're at whatever price you want to call. All of a sudden, $75 on Brent crude, is a that's a hello quote. If we get to 80 you know, essentially nobody called that. But Elsa, how do you play long oil? So one that we like, it might be a little obscure, is long knocky stocky, the two Scandi currencies, one against the other. Um, Norwegian yeah. krona obviously exposed to oil, Swedish krona um, clearly not, and it's also a central bank play. So, you know, there are trades out there. I, I mean, oh, here's an email. Sarah from Cincinnati, John Farrell, emails in on, on knocky stocky. Yeah. And, and says She's an FX, the, and uh, says, specialist. And, and, says, and says what? She you says just, she just, agrees. <laughs> she says you know. She's quick on I'm the email. At, so so your is your basic your basic idea here is to go long Stockholm on that or is it bet on long, oil and Norway? You're going long Oslo. You're going long Oslo. Long Oslo short Stockholm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Eliza Martinucci joining us now, Bloomberg's managing editor for finance in Europe, and joining us on the phone. Really great to have you, um, Eliza, and just walk me through what we've learned about the new COO and how the management is slowly taking shape at Deutsche Bank. Yes, hi, John. Well, I guess what's interesting about this appointment is that it's another um, Deutsche Bank lifer, much like the new CEO is, Christian Serving, and, you know, principally with exposure to the, um, the domestic businesses. So there seems to be a, a bit of a pattern emerging in terms of the new leadership now. So what next for this bank? Because every single morning, whenever there's a Deutsche Bank story, it's usually the most read story on the Bloomberg. And guess what? It is again, as Deutsche Bank considers cuts to the investment bank and the presence in the United States. Eliza, where is this going and what are they looking at more specifically for their next move? Well, I guess what we're hearing now is that this Project Colombo, which we um, have been reporting about for a few weeks, um, is gathering pace. And so this review of the investment bank and uh, a closer analysis of where it is that they're making money and where it is that they perhaps ought to be retreating is now coming to an end. And the picture that's emerging is that the U.S. equities business, the U.S. cash equities yeah. business, is perhaps one where you know they will be retreating. I was just talking to Anthony in Sparta. Sparta is like in the Alps of New Jersey. It's sort of outside New York City, farther FYI, he out. moved from Sparta, by the way, to the flatlands of New Jersey. He's now in the, the Pine yeah. Barrens? <laughs> Something like that. I read by John McPhee. Elizabeth, how many bodies are there in, in, in for Deutsche Bank in New York? I mean, how many people do they actually, when we say at cash equity and all that, how many bodies are involved? Well, what we know from from some of the analysis that some of the analysts have done is that they um, include around, they employ about um, ten thousand, if I'm not mistaken. Really? Um, yes, but of course, not all of those will be in the equities business, and not all of those will be in the cash equities business. Um, what is so, that's jargon? Excuse me. Time for a jargon alert with Liza Martinuzzi. What's cash equities? What does that mean? So that is the trading of, of plain vanilla shares as opposed to the dealing in, in, for example, derivatives that might be based on equities. It's like stock, like IBM, That's right. you know, whatever. Yes, the trading of Do stock. they do that from London then? I mean, what I don't understand is are they going to get out of the equity business? How can you do that? 
Well, we have seen players, um, you know, other banks that have retreated from the trading of stocks in certain regions. Um, that is not unheard of. I mean, but the, the question that will remain is what, how much of the other business you're able to maintain exactly. if you can no longer go to a client and say, I can offer equity trading across the world. Precisely. What is the track record of other banks that have said we're getting out of this business because it's a, it's a money loser? What's the track record? What we don't have is a clear track record of someone with such a presence pulling back. So we, we've seen that in smaller players, but we don't have the track record with you know a leading global firm pulling out of the bigger yeah. equity market. What do you see in earnings coming out? We've seen bank earnings coming out. What is the state of the the EU banking that, that, that commands your attention? So what we're expecting, based on what the analysts have been crunching, is that there will be an even wider split between the Europeans and the U.S. firms, particularly in areas such as equity trading. Um, what we've seen so far is that you know UBS that reported yeah. yesterday did a little bit better than people were expecting. Um, having said that, they did so by ramping up um, the risk-taking in their equity business. So one of the key yeah. metrics there, the value at risk, um, more than doubled um, for equity trading. So it, it seems that they're, you know, they're, they're trying to find ways to maintain yeah. that market share. Elisa, thank you so much. Elisa Martinuzzi running all of our EU bank coverage. Just fabulous. It's wonderful to have with us now Michael Mayo of Wells Fargo Securities, and we're going to rip up the script here and do something a little different. Michael Mayo, I think this is great to walk through the gossip of a bank, and in this case, Citigroup, but I really want to outline who these people are in their paths to this moment, and of course, looking at all the speculation of what Gary Cohn may do or not do. Let's begin with one of the great gentlemen in the business, which is Michael O'Neill. I first knew him, Mike, at Bank of Hawaii. He goes back to Continental, Illinois. Who is the present chairman of Citigroup, and what did he do for Mr. Corbett in the bank? Well, just to put perspective on this, Tom, I am in Chicago for Citigroup's annual meeting. I go there to ask questions. It's the only chance, once-a-year chance, to ask questions of board members when their answers uh, they can be held publicly accountable to. So Mike O'Neill was one of the grandfathers of bank restructuring. Uh, he was a master at ensuring adequate capital al allocation. He was actually the chief financial officer at Legacy Bank America, as you said, Bank of Hawaii. He was the CEO, and he's been chairman uh, for most of this decade at Citigroup. So he's overseen an effort by Citigroup to not have the situation like they had during the financial crisis, mm -hmm. you know, for the next you know generation, and so the de-risking at Citigroup has been you know, excellent. Uh, they've discarded some inefficient businesses, and Citigroup is on a much stronger foundation, you know, facilitated by him, certainly implemented by the management. A chairman drives the board. Would you suggest, within the speculation and rumor that he pushed out Mr. Pandit years ago? You know, Tom, I, I think I was on your show some of those times, and, um, you know, it was my view that Citigroup needed a new CEO, and it was also the view of many investors that Citigroup needed a, a new CEO at the time. And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, Mike O'Neill, chairman of Citigroup, you know, listened to the, the thoughts of investors and made up his own mind. Yeah, parse for us what a chairman does versus an operating executive such as Mr. Corbett. Mike Mayo, I spent time with Mr. Corbett at Davos on a panel. 
Uh, he is the buoyant football player from Harvard. And folks, I should point out that Mr. Corbett is actually the real deal. He's not some kid that happened to play football. He was, by all acclaim, actually really, really good. What's that relationship between a chairman and an operating bank officer handling 240,000 people? Well, Tom, I'd like to point out this is an exception among the large banks. Citigroup has a separate chairman, as you say, Mike O'Neill, versus the CEO, Mike Corbett. And you know, this is a big issue of governance, not just for banks, but for all corporations. Do you need a chairman? What the chairman does, it's an extra check and balance on behalf of investors to ensure that the company is pursuing sustainable growth. Certainly, Citigroup uh, is the poster child for what can go wrong. Uh, you saw that over the last, uh, well, it, mm-hmm. it was a 20-year anniversary, uh, just April 6th, of the creation of Citigroup in its current form, and the stock is down 80%. So if any bank, if any firm needs an extra set of eyes, it probably would be Citigroup. And the role of the chairman is to ensure the strategy is adequate, to ensure there's mm-hmm. good succession plans, and to ensure that you're not taking excessive short-term risks to get management paid that comes back and bites you later on. Can Jamie Dimon do both jobs? Well, look, that's best in class. Uh, J.P. Morgan is best in class among the global bulk bracket banks. And so, you know, it's working. Uh, look, a question for governance, though, is <clears throat> can it work not only under Jamie Dimon, and it is, but can it work under the next CEO at J.P. Morgan or Bank America or any of the other large banks? Let's turn to Gary Cohn. Do you believe the speculation that he could be asked or assume the duties of chairman of Citigroup? Well, Mike O'Neill, chairman of Citigroup, has mandatory retirement at the end of this year. That will be my first question I ask at today's annual meeting at Citigroup. So one option is to promote Mike Corbett to chairman. Uh, another option is to find somebody on the outside. Gary Cohn seems available. Uh, there's other people, the ex-CEO of U.S. Bancorp, Richard Davis, uh, Harvey Schwartz. But it's, you know, it's the board's imperative to do their homework, to look at the talent right. out there and see if they could benefit by somebody else. So why not Gary Cohn or someone else like that to be chairman of Citigroup? I, I'd like to hear their thoughts on that. And, and this is what I wanted to get to, folks, with that historic walkthrough we just did. We've got the time this morning to do this right with Mike Mayo at the meeting in Chicago. Mike, what's fascinating, and I say this with a immense respect for Gary Cohn's public service to the nation. How do you move from the operating hands-on Goldman Sachs guy to chairman duties? Is, does everybody do that, or, or, or is that too much of a hurdle for Mr. Cohn to do? I mean, it, they got to start somewhere. They all started as a tough operating officer like Mr. Cohn. So is he eminently qualified to be chairman-like? Well, one benefit I have, Tom, is, you know, we published our questions for the meeting today and asked large institutional investors, these are the largest owners of Citigroup and the other banks, what other questions do you have? What are your thoughts about some of our ideas? And one of the ideas was, you know, what about someone like Gary Cohen as chairman? And I'd say the feedback that we've gotten has been good. Uh, so the large investors mm-hmm. who do this as their day job think that would, could be a positive addition. Now, having said that, right. we've heard nothing about Gary Cohen and his intentions, but that's one of several people that 
seems right. to make sense. The the charts that I do, Mike Mayo, you know my normalized charts on the banks back to 2007, 2008, the Lehman uh, moment. Come on, they've lagged, they've lagged, they've lagged. Is there an urgency for Citigroup to really jumpstart shareholder return, or is this going to be a long slog still for Mr. Corbett? Well, look, that's one reason why I'm here in Chicago, Tom. I mean, I'm here for this purpose. Uh, Citigroup has made great progress. They now have double-digit return on equity, return on tangible equity. That's first time since before the financial crisis. Their risk is significantly less, and the stock, while it's underperformed this year, it did outperform last year. Having said that, Citigroup has worst-in-class returns and worst-in-class stock price valuation. So if that's the case, what is the stock market saying? What we think the stock market is mm-hmm. saying is Citigroup needs to up the intensity to another degree right. and you know, hold management's feet to the fire, and that partly is the role of a chairman. A couple more questions here, Mike Mayon. I've got to go tangential to the idea of a European bank walking away from the quote-unquote cash equities business in New York. I have no idea how you walk away from the equity business in a given geography and maintain the further banking relationship. Can any bank, including Deutsche Bank, can they do that? Well, Tom, when I was on your show a few weeks ago, you know, I mentioned uh, Goliath is winning, David versus Goliath, and Goliath is winning in capital markets. And so the large five banks are really outpacing the next five largest, which are European. And so the European banks, whether it's Deutsche Bank, Barclays, um, or um, Credit Suisse, have single-digit ROEs. So the way you walk away is if you have very low returns, that's a tough way to keep feeding a value-destroying business. And that's Mm -hmm. in contrast, frankly, to Citigroup's current returns, which are double-digit, also J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. So the larger U.S. capital market banks are winning versus the European banks. Michael Mayo, hugely valuable. Thank you for your time. He is in Chicago for the Citigroup meeting. He is with Wells Fargo. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.